This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. At Vertex, we know the pace of global commerce is increasing, which makes managing tax more complex. And your enterprise systems weren't built to handle that tax complexity. This is where we come in with our platform that enables continuous compliance giving you more transparency, improved accuracy, and better confidence in your tax data. To learn more about continuous compliance, visit vertexinc.com. Welcome back, fellow optimists. Sophia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. So settle in, because we're about to take off and dive into another radically optimistic conversation. For today's episode, we're tuning in to a conversation recorded back in May 2020 led by Carolyn Colta, Senior Associate here at XPRIZE with contributions from Bernard Kowach, Head of the Innovation Accelerator at the United Nations World Food Program, Lauren Fries, Head of Food Systems Collaboration at the World Economic Forum, and Marin Dahls, an activist for the Circular Food for Economy. This fascinating discussion tackles issues around food insecurity, including, but not limited to, the impact of COVID-19 on food systems. The goal of this session is to identify how AI can help us reach zero hunger and shape the food landscape of tomorrow. Buckle up, because it's time to take off. Over to you, Carolyn. Over the next hour, we will be digging into the various issues that currently exist around food systems and food security and discussing how AI is currently and will be shaping the food landscape of tomorrow. I'm joined today by a great panel and would love to hand it over to them to introduce themselves and tell us where they're joining from. I'll start with Lauren. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Lauren Fries. I've uh, focused on the future of food systems for many years and lead a strategic advising firm focused on the future of food systems with respect to technology and innovation called Future Table. Uh, I'm joining you from California in the US. Hand it over to Marin. Good morning, uh, afternoon, everyone, wherever you are. My name is Marin Dolce. I'm a circular economy scholar and activist, and I happen to work at Danone as the global director of open innovation and circular economy for food, and I'm joining you today from the Netherlands. Hi, everybody. My name is Bernard Kovac. I'm the head of the World Food Programs Innovation Accelerator. We are based here in Munich, in Germany. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you so much. I'd like to start with a question on a topic on everyone's mind today, which is COVID-19, and link that to the future of food and food systems currently. And um, the question would be, uh, global food security projections are very grim, especially considering the impact of COVID-19. And I'd love to know from all of the panelists, what can we expect in the coming years and who will be the most affected by this pandemic around food security specifically? If, if I can start, I think um, 
from a World Food Promise perspective, we just launched a report. Actually, it's about one or two weeks ago. Uh, our executive director briefed the Security Council on this, where we actually based an analysis on country-level economic and food security indicators, uh, which unfortunately forecasted the number of acutely hungry people will increase from 135 million people to 265 million people. So there's a real risk of multiple famines and acute hunger that might happen. Now, how is COVID-19 actually influencing food security? The issue here is not only about like trade restrictions, there's also a question about like ability to actually perform your duties. And especially if you think about when people are earning a wage on a daily basis to sustain their daily lives of them and their own families, if you cut off that employment, that has severe effects on you and your families and the ones that you actually provide for. Now, this is in particular a challenge that uh, we think that the acutely poor and more food insecure people are like kind of the people who are like daily informal labor markets, uh, specifically also like urban settings where uh, maybe like that might be more uh, severely cut off from lockdown. But uh, also it's oftentimes um, already affecting communities that already are affected by shocks, by uh, conflicts, uh, climate change and other aspects that make their lives already right now and their livelihoods put them at risk in terms of like stretched food supply chains. Now, what we think about this is then really in the future of food and the discussion that we're seeing right now, this is a shock that exacerbates current problems. And so we need innovation like AI to actually do something and have impact for the people that we serve. Let me compliment much of what Bernard uh, said and, and actually talk a little bit about the impact that come from the ecosystems around these food insecure populations. And let me give three examples where I think there's a, a potential crisis, but also some windows of, of opportunity. It may be helpful to point out that some of the consumers hardest hit will actually be in import dependent nations. If we look at the continent of Africa, you know, their, their food import bill was projected to reach $110 billion by, by 2025. You know, small island developing states or other import dependent regions will be very hard hit. But I think that this will interact actually with a, almost a reverse shift in globalization um, towards more decentralized food systems. So there might be a real impact now, but also some opportunity as, as we look forward to readjust some some of that system. A second impact I wanted to talk about is, is on workers. And right now we are appropriately celebrating um, and recognizing the essential role of farm factory and food workers. And also at the same time, we're recognizing that any human interaction with the food value chain, uh, at least in the context of, of a virus, presents some risk. And so you see a lot of activity in the investment space, for instance, around robotics and automation. So the question of the future of work in this turbocharged digital age, um, I think is a real open one. A third and final set of people I wanted to talk about that really have to do with who is experiencing the impact of this crisis in hunger terms, that group has to do with the entrepreneurs who form the SME or the small and medium enterprise sector. So in places like Africa, these folks, these small businesses are actually the backbone of the economy and those who actually provide the sorts of food and, and food related services to their communities that we so desperately need. So how to support those SMEs in that kind of sector, I think is, is a really important and imperative question for, our, for this moment. Yeah, so let me build on what Lauren just said. I totally recognize the point about entrepreneurs. And I also, from my perspective and my job, take the look at, at startups and, and equally there see lots of risks of what will happen to the ecosystem at the end of this crisis. 
but I also see an opportunity because I actually believe that this crisis is making the weaknesses of our system, including the food system, tangible, in which I actually find some hope as even though, as was just described, uh, the less powerful will be hit hardest. The powerful, those that so far felt untouchable, will be impacted now. This unprecedented shock to the system is making the downsides of the linear system that we created very visible and even undeniable, even for the naysayers and the skeptics. And I actually take hope from that, that this might be the start of an acceleration in a system shift. I think all of your answers touched on something very important, which is you can't really disconnect food from the system and the whole value chain when you think about the food industry. And Marin, I'd like to start with you and a question around something you've advocated for for a long time, which is a system level revolution and a shift towards a circular food economy. I'd appreciate if you can tell us more about that concept and that shift and whether it can help us prevent future crises, uh, health and others, and also if innovation has a role in that shift and what that would be. All right, let me take a stab at that jam-packed question, um, but I love talking about it. If you look at our current food system, which I would call linear food system, um, it's built on a mechanistic worldview. Uh, we see the world as a giant machine which in my opinion is the product of the industrial revolution. And this system is built on a premise of infinite growth, interestingly within a finite world. And one of the key levers for this growth and drivers of that system is efficiency. Now what efficiency leads to is intensification, which one could argue increases actually the breeding ground for viruses like COVID. Um, it's also specialization and the removal of all redundancies from the system. And I think that's key because the removal of this, these redundancies leads to a fragile system, a system that is prone to shock, which is what we're seeing right now. Now, if in contrast, we look at the circular economy, which I would define as a food system that has a positive economic, social, and ecological impact by design, this system in contrast is grounded in complex adaptive systems paradigm, just like nature. It sounds complex, but it's basically just like nature. This system doesn't aim for infinite growth, but it's aimed at a dynamic balance. Again, just like nature. And this system isn't driven by efficiency, which is trying to do more of the same with less, but it's actually driven by effectiveness, which is about doing the right thing. And such systems, they build actually, and they create diversification, decentralization. And as such, what they create is resilience. Now. If we then look at the role of innovation, which was the second part of your question, I believe that innovation is crucial in a system shift, as I just described. Complex adaptive systems don't change in a linear planned fashion. They're not built on the very mechanistic notion of inter and extrapolation. They change through emergence. And I therefore believe that innovation and experimentation are the, the very adaptive power of the system, just like uh, procreation and mutation is the adaptive power of mankind. So I think that it definitely can have a positive impact as long as we uh, make sure that we harness this power of innovation and direct it in the right way. Thanks, Marin.
Um, with that, I'd love to turn to Lauren and explore with you some of the examples of how AI innovation has impacted and will impact the future food systems at different levels of the food value chain. Yeah, let me zoom people through the, the food value chain all the way from farm to fork. So starting on farm, and I think a lot of you will be familiar with some of the applications of digital technology, including artificial intelligence um, at the farm level. And so uh, often that's used to increase yield, but it can also be used to optimize for uh, other interests. So using sensors, drones, robotics, automation, et cetera, internet of things on farms. I think one of the things that we will see actually coming out of COVID-19 and picking up uh, and accelerating forward in general is producing food elsewhere, um, including indoors, um, something called controlled environment agriculture, and using a lot of those same digital tools through farm management systems. And I think that will be a very, very interesting outgrowth of this, of this crisis and, and, and maybe something that can help us towards those more decentralized systems that were mentioned. As we move along the value chain, I think supply chain logistics and the efficiencies that can be gained through digitization and some of the, the uh, artificial intelligence applications will be absolutely key. What we see breaking now is largely as a result of those supply chain linkage failures um, or channel switching between you know, food that was going to restaurants or, or hospitals and, or, or you know, hotels and is now uh, going into retail. And so actually having very smart systems to be able to direct the food where it's needed to go uh, will be key. And, and another opportunity along the supply chain is traceability. Uh, and, and I think that's becoming more and more important to, to consumers. As we get to the retail end of the value chain, We've already seen e-commerce fundamentally reshaping how people buy food from Alibaba and Amazon down to uh, marketplaces. And I think that there are a set of innovative marketplace spaces, such as in Nigeria, for instance, that are doing a better job of linking supply and demand, actually allowing demand to prompt supply, uh, reducing waste in the system, increasing economic opportunity for those involved. Finally, we get to the eaters, the consumers. And I think that one of the applications is where food and science meet, such as for the human microbiome and, and needing uh, uh, advanced tools like artificial intelligence, maybe even supercompute to support the complex research analytics around that space. A final that I'll say is, is around intelligence. And I think that one of the things that, that Bernard and his team and others who are looking at the macro picture uh, around this, this crisis really need is the intelligence around hunger shocks. Um, and so whether it's satellite imagery to survey a landscape or it's looking at the interactions of markets to spot where there's going to be a food shortage, uh, we need tools like artificial intelligence, supercompute power again, to be able to bring us the sort of intelligence that it can help us spot a crisis as far as we can in advance and mitigate the effects of it. Thanks, Lauren. And, and that's a great segue to a question for Bernard about your work um, at the World Food Program through the Innovation Accelerator. And I'm, I'm very curious about how you are utilizing um, and promoting AI applications in your food security and resilience programming internationally. Just to provide some context as World Food Program, we're the world's leading agency fighting hunger. So it's both on the side of like uh, saving lives in emergencies, so like food or cash in emergencies, but also uh, changing lives, like providing, supporting national system for school meals, mother and child nutrition, working with small farmers. So I, I think it's actually within that spectrum that we're working uh, on a multitude of solutions, like on the, if you want, on the front end before to actually identify where are hungry people and how hungry are they. One innovation that we've supported that's actually online also is called Hunger Map Live. So you can go online, hungermap.wfp.org. 
And what you can uh, see there is a real-time an, uh, analytics platform that also visualizes food security, hunger, and most recently also COVID-19 incidents and also scrapes uh, news platforms so that we have a re near real-time re reflection of what's actually happening on the ground. So it's linked up with uh, databases, but also like scraping news platforms. We see a lot of innovation in that regard where it's like you are quicker in responding to emergencies. You are faster in getting the right food to the right people at the right time. And that can have a huge impact. Then you're not talking about like increasing your program efficiency by a percent, by 2%. You might have 20, 30% efficiency or effectiveness gains, which is really exciting. In the same vein, uh, there's another innovation we've been uh, supporting. It's called PLUS. It's a school menu optimizer. And if, if you think about it, like a lot of times, like in you know, the countries where we're operating, it would be in a school, there's a kitchen where uh, somebody's cooking a meal for the children that's nutritious, and they're doing what they're doing all the time because that's what they've been cooking for years. Now, what the tool actually does, it optimizes the costs with the nutritional intake, and they've been able to prove that they can actually reach 30% more children with the same amount of money by optimizing the you know, nutritious recipes with the nutrients that go to school children, which is really, really exciting. And then maybe just to uh, look at the front end, what Lauren was also mentioning with like, what on the consumer end? Like, so we've been, uh, for instance, with smaller farmers, we've been supporting a startup called Hello Tractor. They are actually from Nigeria, originally now uh, expanding in, in Africa. It's an Uber for tractor. Uh, and what they do is they're actually renting out those tractors as a for-profit model. So instead of you owning it as a smaller farmer, you can rent it. So you benefit, the tractor owner benefits, and also the startup, uh, which is amazing. So it's an optimization that you actually have to do. And just as a last example, a recent one that has been launched in our Somalia country operations, they actually launched an innovation on e-shop and delivery. So you can imagine like your favorite delivery platform that you have uh, and over $100,000 of food that's being delivered to people also because of COVID-19 social distancing issues that uh, it's actually safer and a better customer support for people who actually receive food assistance so that they can actually uh, receive what they're entitled to. Thanks Bernard for that overview um, and with that I want to turn back to Marin and a Something uh, that was mentioned earlier is around urbanization and how urban centers are going to be some of the most hit by um, this pandemic and the crisis that we're in. And the question is, trends are showing that we're shifting more towards urbanization in the future with the majority of us living in urban centers uh, over the next decades. And I was wondering um, how AI can accelerate the transition towards a circular food economy, which is a very natural process, as Marin described, but in an urban center where it's more of concrete buildings and, and less so of the natural uh, environment that we can think of. First of all, I wonder whether this pandemic might actually slow down the urbanization. I mean, by force factor, we're now all confined in our homes. We're all sitting behind our computers and we're figuring out ways to, to connect remotely. And I would imagine that this might have a lasting effect on the very notion uh, and need for physical proximity, including the proximity to the big urban centers and metropoles as the heart of social and economic activity that has been driving urbanization. Just a question to throw out there. What I think about the food and the agricultural system today is too complex to fully understand with traditional analytical methods. Um, building a circular economy of food will add additional complexity. And this is where I think that AI is needed. If we look at the levers of system level change, one of the most powerful one 
is to change the goal of the system. And in my opinion, economy is changing the why question, basically. But another very powerful lever is our information flows and feedback loops. And if we then look at, for instance, the farming side, the lack of data or the lack of access to knowledge and data leads to unpredictability and risk, which is one of the major barriers to a transition from conventional, I would say, depletive agriculture to, for instance, regenerative practices. And farming is highly, highly local. So you need lots of data and you need data that's relevant for you on the field where you're at for your crops. AI can help overcome this gap, helping farmers to de-risk this transition by making the world's knowledge and database easier to both feed and to read or access, allowing them to identify the crops and crop systems that would work best in their specific environment. Secondly, if I look at the physical and also informational distance between farmers and producers on one side and markets on the other side, I believe that AI has the power of reducing uh, the information lag and reducing this, this distance. I see potential for AI to help connect producers and consumers anywhere in the world to each other in real time. And then thirdly and finally, if I look at both consumers and corporates, the availability of holistic information on the social and ecological impact of our choices in the food that we source, in the food that we develop, in the food that we produce, we sell, or the food that we eat is essential. Real-time access to holistic and understandable data will allow everyone from a farm to a C-suite to a supermarket shelf to use their dollars, their power to vote for the world we want. And those are all elements where I think that AI definitely can have a massive positive impact in enabling different future, a regenerative future. Thanks, Marin. So it does seem from, from this answer that a connected system is very, very important to achieve uh, the potential of AI. And I want to turn to Lauren with a question about the collaboration across food value chain stakeholders and various innovation approaches. How important is that and how does that play out to achieve the best potential for AI and innovation and impact those who need it the most? Thanks, Caroline. And in a word, um, collaboration is, is critical. There's a world of opportunity at the intersection of technologies like AI and issues like hunger um, or social impact more broadly. Uh, but we need a multi-stakeholder approach to that. We need business to come alongside government, alongside civil society, alongside a range of, of the disparate players involved. I think that we need to ask three questions that guide our way. I think we need to ask AI for what, AI for whom, and AI at what cost. So AI for what? What are we solving for? I think a lot of us have seen a technology firm or an app developer sort of produce a solution and go and look for a problem. And if we do that for food systems, that we're going to accelerate the food system we currently have, which I think many would agree uh, is not optimal. It is not solving for nutrition. It's not solving for regenerative agriculture. It's not solving for equity. So I think we need to say, what do we want to solve for in food systems? So take the reverse of that, nutritious, equitable, regenerative food systems, put that at the center and solve around that. So direct our innovation and our technology, including AI towards that. AI for whom? 
you know, I sit here in California where there's a lot of discussion about self-driving cars, for instance, and I think the question of the morality of the machines that we're building and the intelligence that sits within them is critical. The ethics, the morality, the biases. We know that AI, for instance, will perpetuate the biases in our society unless we're clearly redesigning it. So whether it's through uh, insights from MIT's Moral Machine or, or, or elsewhere, the Algorithmic Justice League has good insights on this topic. You know, how do we actually put ethics and equity at the center of our AI systems, including and especially as applied to our food systems? AI at what cost? COVID is prompting unprecedented digitization. It's really fascinating to watch. And in some cases, it's wonderful and, and can help us meet this moment in different ways. Also, data is the new gold and much of it is owned or will be owned or and or controlled by very large players, governments, uh, big businesses. And to something Marin said before, you know, how, how, is they, the, how are those data accessed by the people who it's about or the people who use it, uh, farmers, consumers? So I would posit we need more open source systems, more protections, uh, more savvy citizens and, and tech technology consumers. So all to say, this is complicated. Collaboration is very difficult. I'm someone who, by virtue of having worked at the World Economic Forum at the range of different sectors and now working with clients, including in the tech sector, but being myself very focused on SDG2, the Sustainable Development Goal 2, uh, and other hunger and, and food security challenges, that interlocutor role is difficult. These actors speak different languages, have different cultures, and actually having more people, I think, at the center who can translate the power of technologies like AI into social good, um, I think is critical. And I recognize that there may be many in the crowd who play that role, and I encourage you uh, to do more and more of that. We need you. Thanks, Lauren. With that, I want to turn again to Bernard to give us some of the context in, in emerging countries. And from your work, um, what does a scale-up of innovation and AI in those developing country contexts look like? And what needs to happen to ensure that the benefits of AI, to, to Lauren's point about for whom, really impact those who need them the most? I think uh, the first element of this is like, how does investment into AI in developing countries look like in food? Uh, and the truth of it is, generally speaking, investments, if you look at venture capital money or business angel, like generally is underrepresented like in food compared to like other uh, sectors, if you want, right? And then and even in there, a lot of the investment goes into like food delivery apps in developed countries where, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with like providing funding for these types of apps and startups, but like, I think there's lots of more potential that actually can be done also for developing countries. So this is where in particular thinking about like local talent uh, that could be supported in some of the hotspots uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, and some other areas where uh, across Asia or Latin America, like where there's talent, there's interesting startups, there's definitely drive. And those startups typically have a much better knowledge about the local innovation ecosystem. The second element of this is probably about like, how do you bridge the words of what are currently the AI hotspots? You know, you're probably talking about like Silicon Valley, some parts of Europe, uh, China and other areas in the world where you have lots of artificial intelligence talent researchers where that are on the forefront of some of these developments. And how can you provide some of that technology and make it more egalitarian and accessible to other parts of the world? Uh, could be by 
you know, companies providing, you know, resources for free pro bono or like also focusing on building up uh, local innovation hubs in Africa. Some of the tech companies have started doing that to actually also hire local talent and so make it more accessible for different countries to actually do that. And the third element is about how do we inspire people who are, let's say, serial entrepreneurs? You are a founder of a startup, serial founder. You have done it before. You've been successful. And to see that it is a potential, not only for charity, but you can actually create a business that has a positive impact on the planet in ending hunger. And I think this is a huge opportunity. Think again about the example that I had about Hello Tractor and like there's a couple of others. People can check it out on our website, innovation.wfp.org. Another one was like we've been supporting a startup called Cloud to Street. They use remote sensing to provide flood monitoring, preparedness to governments, local uh, communities. And it's a, it's a for-profit startup. And I think the knowledge that it is possible that you can actually create a startup, you can create jobs for yourself and for others and still have a positive impact is something that we have to broadcast more and actually be open to that and you know maybe for some of these scaling questions that you had Caroline it's maybe some of the solutions should be a non-profit solution or something that should be offered at no cost as an open source platform that might also be a possibility to scale great thank you so much this has been a great discussion so far and I'd love to hear from you what's your views on the future of food as AI becomes fully integrated into the food value chain and the food industry. What does that future look like? Um, and I, I'd love to start with Lauren on that question. Sure. So I think there's some bright spots, some open questions. So let me share a few. I think some bright spots. I think we'll have greater efficiency and intelligence by applying AI more to the future of food. I think those supply chain efficiencies that I, I reference, I think could get us to a world with very little uh, waste, for instance. Um, I think the intelligence applications are many, crisis spotting, optimizing for what we want, including for nutrition, et cetera. I also think that AI can help us to really accelerate new types of industry within the agri-food space. Um, I had mentioned before, but I'll mention again, indoor agriculture or again, controlled environment agriculture, I think is a really interesting way for us to reimagine production. And it has to do a bit with what uh, Marin was saying as to, you know, maybe we're not going to be urbanizing quite as quickly. Maybe we're actually going to be flowing backwards into uh, more rural spaces and we're going to be becoming more decentralized as a global society in terms of, of our food system. So actually bringing food production closer to where people consume it could be really interesting, a range of technologies to do that. Other types of industry, alternative proteins. I think those of us who look at the blockages, for instance, in the meat supply chain here in the U.S. are switching to other types of, of proteins. And that's everything from cellular agriculture to plant-based proteins to things like algae and fungi. Uh, you know, and there's a ton of applications for uh, digitization and, again, uh, artificial intelligence there. Third type of industry, you know, biological sciences where, where food and, and nutrition meet those sciences. I do think there are some open questions. You know, how can we enable a sort of agency and ownership in decentralized food systems with more centralized data systems, right? There's almost an ironic tension here that as we get more decentralized in terms of our food societies, we actually may have more uh, control in a central point in terms of who owns those data or controls some of the algorithms behind them. I think another open question, again, as I mentioned before, both COVID and AI accentuate and accelerate inequities. So how can we redesign for greater equity? I'll, I'll maybe 
end of this point by saying I was part of a or viewed a webinar yesterday by S2G uh, where one of them talked about what they, they called the urgency of the long term. And I think that's a really profound uh, question. What's the urgency of the long term for food systems right now and, and how can AI play into that? I was reading the report that, that S2G shared yesterday and uh, I have a, a question for all of you. So what do GE, Disney, FedEx, Uber, and Slack have in common? Well, I learned that they were all founded during an economic recession. We're moving into an economic recession right now. And I think the point here is that innovation can and hopefully and probably will be born out of this moment. And so I invite us to ask, what is the good that we can design out of this for our food systems? In addition to some of the impacts that we started with at the beginning of this conversation, which will be deeply felt, how can we rebuild food systems for the future in the way that we want? Again, around regenerative agriculture, around nutrition. We can design that future that we want and we need to do it now. Thanks, Lauren. Marin, would you like to share next? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm gonna build on what Lauren said. I see AI as an enabler. And I agree with Lauren's question that she asked previously on AI for what? And for me, that what question is answered with the vision of a circular economy of food system that has a positive social and ecological impact by design. And I, I like the fact that Lauren actually just teed this up so perfectly by mentioning the word of designing a food system a number of times in her response. And reacting to that sense of urgency, I was on a call yesterday with uh, Salzburg uh, Global, and somebody mentioned that actually the moment is now. Uh, where we thought that we had six to eight years to react, we actually have six to 18 months because in the next six to 18 months, trillions of dollars in aid packages will be released to restart economies all across the world and making sure that some of that money or actually a large chunk of that money also goes to the redesign of our food system, I think is important because it will set the direction for decades to come. And to transform towards this new system, which I believe can literally become fuel and a flywheel for regeneration beyond just food, but food at the center. We'll only be able if we also get back to nature, get back in touch with nature through regenerative farming, by applying biomimicry and starting to look at nature as a source of solutions with 3.8 billion years of lifetime experience, rather than just a source of raw materials. However, in contrast, and Lauren already mentioned controlled environment agriculture. I think that AI also is a platform innovation. Uh, and in, in my opinion, AI is one of those innovations that opens a door, as uh, Stephen Johnson called it in his book. It opens an adjacent possible. And I think that the circular economy of food is possible and powered in part by AI. I guess I'm a technology optimist. Oftentimes people would ask me, so is it possible to actually achieve zero hunger by 2030? And the answer is, it is possible. Yes, we do need to end the wars. We need to tackle climate change. And there's certain underlying issues that have to be progressing. But technologies like artificial intelligence offer up opportunities that could be those breakthroughs, that step change that are required to really get towards the goal of zero hunger. And I, I, I just want to make this 
you know, plea of support. If you're inspired by that, or like uh, if you're working in AI, yes, obviously there has to be an underlying infrastructure in place. Uh, in a lot of developing countries, uh, connectivity, access to internet, devices, like th this is all things that need to be in place. But then again, uh, what we are seeing this point, even right now, there is uh, communities like very, um, like, poor communities where it's maybe a new job, that's a, a, the entrepreneur that has the smartphone that provides services to the rest of the com communities all of a sudden, rather than everybody individually for owning a uh, smartphone. And I think this is where like, we'll see a lot of change in that regard. And artificial intelligence will help us make the next step change. Even from the examples that we see right now is, we saw that, okay, you can cut uh, food waste uh, if 30 to 40% of food globally right now is being lost because of food waste or post-harvest losses. Uh, imagine what we could do with all that food that's currently going to waste. Similarly, the, the example I gave with the school meals, if we optimize diet, that's nutritious meals that taste good, we can optimize nutritious intake of things that you, uh, and reduce the cost and you actually have more for everybody. And then thinking about like, how can you be a lot more accessible for people in developing countries? Like take, for example, a smallholder farmer right now. Maybe they have had disadvantages like because they were not able to go to school and they didn't learn to read and write. Imagine a world where there's low-cost devices, where there's a voice assistant, and all of a sudden that voice assistant provides the smallholder farmers with precision agriculture advice. Uh, imagine a world like how that could change. And like this is one example of like if you imagine a future and that we're that doesn't mean in 10 years from now, this, the phones exist, artificial intelligence exists, voice interface exists. So like there's lots of things that can happen right now even. And this is where I'm really passionate about like, okay, let's think about like, how can we create that social impact unicorn? So like, let's define how these kind of, instead of a billion dollar valuation, we're focusing on creating startups that impact maybe a billion people. It's really something that is possible, but we just need to use the energy and the creative bright uh, people out there with who are the technology artificial intelligence with to actually do that awesome and, and that's exactly what xprize tries to do through its competition so it's great to see that everything is coming together um, some emerging themes one one major one was the question around data and um, the governance the privacy the ownership of that data along the value chain and what's ai's role in in that uh, game of ownership and privacy I think we need to look at where data is being collected, such as about farmers and about farms, and understand who will have most access to the insights and the control of the recommendations that are made from those data. So it sort of comes back to what Marin was saying around information and feedback loops, right? If you're pulling information about a farm, but it's going into a broad system that then creates some decision making and recommends to you a certain product and that's what comes back through the voice that Bernard was mentioning then you actually take a little bit of agency away from that farmer to make other different choices and and that's a way that's that's actually blind um, you know that some of those those systems of, of power actually made a little bit more um, shaded and so I don't have the solution here I know that there are many who are working on again sort of open source uh, platforms where we can um, use artificial intelligence to be a bit more democratized uh, both in the governance and the access to those data and I would invite if my co-panelists know of good examples to offer them um, I think there's some in the works but none that I would point to as, as being sort of centrally successful at that moment to rebalance. 
Maybe just to add a quick comment on this also, like I think there's two aspects that are relevant in the in, in the ethical considerations here. One is, I, I think we need to make sure, and like with we, I mean like everybody, if you're working on artificial intelligence is to like bring in other voices, make sure that the knowledge that you're creating is, some of that may be proprietary, but like just to increase the dialogue also that it's not the one artificial intelligence engineer who decides on ethical considerations, but you actually need to bring people up to speed, communities that are affected by it, local governments, people across the world to actually understand some of these implications that they might not be actually be aware of. So like, there's definitely a, a question in that regard. The, the other one is how can you leverage trusted entities as such? I mean, we have been successful for instance, in piloting a blockchain system where we digitize shipping documents, bill of lading from Port of Djibouti into Ethiopia. And one of the reasons why we have been able to do that with the governments, with the local communities, with the port shipping agents, because it's clear that we have the benefits of the people at our hearts. And like, this is something that is just also something to remember when we're talking about artificial intelligence. If you design a system and you make it clear from the outset that something is governed by the local government or the community or it's self-governed, I think that increases the likelihood of acceptance of such solutions. Great. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, another theme also that came up was around the, the challenges that need to be overcome for, for the potential of AI to be achieved and specifically the political contexts that sometimes create like a, a pull factor when you're trying to push something forward. And another was around incentive models that currently exist that are damaging. So economic subsidies or things like that that could hinder the, the potential of innovation given the rigid existing incentive models. I think wherever there is an inefficiency in the system, somebody is benefiting of that. And you have to be aware of this. And like it's, it's not limited to artificial intelligence that's, limit, that's relevant for any type of innovation or startup work. And you do need to, depending on what you want, I do think there's, a, there's an element of sometimes in startup culture, people talk about like, we need to disrupt everything. Maybe sometimes it's more a question of partnerships rather than just disrupting, where like you need to work with people, you need to work with the communities. I think that's, um, that's an element that you have to be aware, I, I, I would say. And I, I would just encourage everybody to also think about like, how do you actually do that on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis? Like if you take the first step, it's always about like you're trying to solve a problem. And if it, a lot of times the, these solutions are very basic. Oftentimes it's just like solutions that are looking for a problem and it doesn't actually solve anything. Let me come in on that. I think at the end of the day, people don't act because they should do something. They act because they're incentivized to do that in whatever ways, including through the market. And I think this comes back to how we design our AI. What are we optimizing for? Um, one of the myths, I think, that we've somewhat moved beyond, but not fully, is the idea that we just need to produce more to feed the population. More, 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 yield. And we've, I think, grown into a, a next phase to say we need to focus on what we're producing, the nutritional value of that, and how we're producing it. So if, for instance, the sensors and the entire Internet of Things system at a farm level were not only um, optimizing for yield, but were, was also optimizing for carbon capture, for instance, and was giving us some information about how much carbon was being captured in the soil or other types of biomass, and was actually feeding into a, a marketplace for that carbon capture. I think we really start, to Marin's point, to redesign our systems through those incentives. I'll jump on what Lauren just said. 
Indeed, policy is, is often counteracting innovation and, and hindering innovation and slowing innovation down. Changing policy is, is tough because policy is often actually the product of politics, which is the product of popular pressure. And so far, we've been really good at showing what's wrong and at bashing what's not good. But we haven't really created a, a utopian view of the future yet. There is very little out there, actually, that displays a, a positive future for the food system. And I think that creating and generating that actually is very important. And for instance, we've worked recently with um, Thought for Food, a Swiss innovation platform, and launched a challenge on the circular economy of food. And we had, with, without any press almost, we had 3,000 startups from 175 countries, mainly Gen Zs, that submitted their products. Now, I'm not saying that any of them are necessarily perfectly circular, but I'm saying that amongst them, all the key elements and pieces are there, and we need to stitch that together and tell that story so that we can also mobilize popular pressure, I would say, to, to overcome some of these challenges. And on the point of yield, I totally agree. We consider today's food to be cheap, but today's food isn't cheap at all. For every dollar of food that we produce or revenue that we generate in the food system, actually, we pay as a society $2. $1 in social cost and $1 in health-related cost. So the food that we're buying that we think is cheap isn't, isn't cheap at all. So these externalities, as we, we call them, that are not in, in the price today, they are problematic. We need to make sure that the food system compensates farmers for everything, all the value they create, beyond just the commodity that comes off their field, but also the social value, also the ecosystem's value, etc. Thank you so much for these answers. Um, one other theme um, that came up in the questions was around uh, duplication of efforts, especially when we think about innovation and all the little startups that um, try to solve the same problems, sometimes a duplication happens. And the question to panelists is, how do we deal with that? Is, is it a positive or a negative? This is something that I truthfully can uh, respond to that is like, Obviously, wasteful duplication would be not smart, and I think we should try to avoid that. So, like, part of what we're trying to do, like, everything uh, is on our website, innovation.wp.org. So, we are trying to also broadcast more you know, information about what works, what doesn't online. And I think we all should try to, like, every accelerator, everybody who's engaged in the system, like, as much as we can. It's my ask to you, please share it, make it publicly available, what works, what doesn't, especially if it's for the benefit of people. But there is an element of competition isn't necessarily bad, especially if it's startups or if it's early stage high risk innovations. A lot of times what we're seeing is that with the startups that we're working with, it doesn't matter how well the first pitch is or how well the first write-up is. It's the quality of the team that determines whether the startup will be successful, which means and sometimes you are lucky and sometimes you are not. So you might have two startups that on the surface look very similar but one of them might be successful, the other one might not be. So I, I do encourage us to, to also look at that from the element of if you follow startup logic and like nine out of 10 startups fail, it's not necessarily bad if we have multiple attempts with different approaches. It can actually help us finding that one startup, that one approach, it will help us really make the difference. I couldn't agree more, Bernard. I think um, it, 
I think we should celebrate innovation in all its forms and encourage it everywhere that it's cropping up and especially in decentralized ways. I mean, I think where we see these solutions need to be appropriate to context, we need the innovators in those contexts to be creating the solutions. And, uh, you know, I, I personally work on, on a range of activities in, in Africa and supporting African entrepreneurs in the agri-food sector. It's awesome to see what springs out of an innovation hub in, in Lagos or in Addis Ababa or what, whatever it may be. So I, I think that we may have duplication of a kind, but especially where it's responding to a local challenge, that context-specific solution um, is going to be really impactful for, for their community, for their market. You know, there, there are, I think, some places where we should avoid duplication. We need interoperability of data systems, for instance. So you know, there are some places where we should would find some broad-scale agreements and, and, and protocols. Uh, but generally speaking, I think let's let a thousand flowers bloom. Well, let's see what turns into that social impact unicorn. And let's really support those information flows. Because as you mentioned, where we can find either pre-competitive spaces or other spaces where people are ready to share, we can leapfrog, we can um, offer tech transfers from certain portions of the world to others. Um, I think it benefits our entire society um, to do so. I actually think it, it's interesting. I mentioned it in one of my earlier comments. Duplication isn't a problem. The fact that actually that we, we dislike duplication again is this very mechanistic worldview. Duplication also means redundancies. And if we think about the way systems change and, and this system should change, it's going to be through emergence. It's not, it's not in a planned fashion that the system will change. And if you think about emergence, it's, it's based on experimentation. So we need as many experiments as we can get because nobody has a crystal ball and knows which experiment, which startup, which innovation is going to set off that next loop, which one is going to hit the positive feedback loop and basically start to tip the system. So I really think that we need to think about our language. That's one of the things I'm trying to say here, because as much as we're aiming for a new paradigm, the old paradigm is so deeply ingrained in us that we typically go back to it. And then to the point of failure, I mean, I just loved when I, when I watched it, and I hope everybody's seen it, but the movie about general magic which basically one of the things I took away from it is, is failure actually failure? And I think when we think about startups, and I agree, I mean, the stats are not rosy. Luckily, that doesn't withhold many entrepreneurs from starting it. But, you know, what's failure? How do we define failure? Is that purely in business success and business outcome? Is it an impact? Is it in opening that adjacent door for the next innovation? We might have to ask ourselves those questions. One final question around gender. Is AI being used to empower rural women from the developing countries in terms of facilitating their access to markets or even land rights, given that women are the main food providers for the entire world? I'll jump in and say, I think we need to ask the question, how can it be used? Um, I mentioned before that artificial intelligence uh, can accentuate the biases um, in our society. And, and that those are biases both in our cognition and also in the access that we have to assets. So um, there have been some examples, for instance, where uh, a platform that was using social media activity to approximate bankability was then offering financial services to the unbanked. Um, now, wonderful design, wonderful ambition, uh, you know, very creative. This is in East Africa. By extension, because men were more likely to own the phones and therefore more likely to be interacting with people and women were less likely to be, it learned that men were more reliable. 
and therefore it should lend more to men. Uh, so we see this sort of learned behavior of the of the intelligence really creating a disproportionate advantage to men who have access to the majority of, of assets in, in the system and disproportionately so, especially in agriculture. I think um, the question is, is really important. Welcome, if my co-panelists know, of ways that we're already correcting for that, but I think that's absolutely imperative that, that we design to do so. So one, one of the factors that we uh, assess startups and innovation on is actually whether they are supportive of uh, gender equality, like in, in their approaches and their goals that they're actually pursuing. Now, having said that, I think it's not always just AI. I mean, there's lots of other, like the question is way more complex and localized. If you look at the specific outcome, this is where I would encourage just human-centered design approaches that about like seeing what people's needs are and trying to see like how you best fulfill them. Uh, that's relevant with AI. And sometimes in an AI innovation, it might, the gender equality or inequality might not be actually the AI component of the startup or project, but might be something completely else, whereas like maybe disposable income or the phone example that Lauren just gave. Like, and I think you just have to be aware of those factors that whatever is being designed actually caters for that. What Lauren said resonated because one thing that really opened my eyes was when I read this piece, and I don't have all the details, so bear with me, was when I read this piece about the development of the microphone. Uh, that actually at the time was tuned to the male pitch. And then as more women started to use them, they were often told that they were screeching or they were screaming. But the simple thing is that the technology wasn't developed with the full pitch and frequency basically in mind. So I would say that one of the things is we need to make sure that technology by design is, I'd say gender new, but in, in general is unbiased. Now, how to make it unbiased? I mean, I'm probably the least knowledgeable on AI on this, but here's what I think that we need to do. Um, I'll, I'll trust the specialists that they will help us figure out a way to get there. With this, I want to give a big thank you to all our panelists for joining us today and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Future Positive Podcast. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow Futurist friends, and remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. If you want to know more about the IBM Watson AI XPRIZE, then head over to ai.xprize.org to find all the details you need. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people in rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.